trends with a voice. Welcome everyone to this new episode of my podcast, Trends with a Voice. In this episode, I have the pleasure to welcome Zivi Richard, a queer trans therapist who helps uh, queer people with their journey. So I'm super happy to have you here, Zivi. Thanks, Audrey. It's so nice to be here. I'm really excited to talk more with you today. So to start, I would like you to share a bit more about who you are and your story. Well, my name is Zivi. My pronouns are Zizer, they, them, and en français, yel, with usually feminine accords are okay. And yeah, I am a clinical social worker. I've been a social worker for a few years now, and I'm all kinds of things. I'm funny, I'm friendly. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I am probably what I usually like to say when I say who I am is someone who dedicates being a person that works towards reducing suffering in people's lives. So I guess what that means for me is just being a better me um, or being just like the most me I can in every moment. And right now that just happens to be a therapist. Like you said, I work with queer people, LGBTQ people in the Moncton area and the like region around Moncton. I also work with people online in the New Brunswick area. And um, my specialty, I guess, or the reason why people usually reach out to me is because of my clinical approach in working with queer people. As a queer and trans person myself, often people will come to me uh, to, you know, get access to healthcare, but also just to explore gender, explore their identities, help their families understand them better, you know, navigating how to do gender, how to do expression, how to, you know, come out to people's like loved ones and workplaces. And so, yeah. And so that's kind of what I do in my job, but I come from a long for me history of working in queer communities. So When I was uh, a teenager, I, well, obviously I've been queer and trans my whole life. <laughs> so yeah, but um, I guess there's always been like gender bending in my life, you know, from pretending to be a boy, like in all kinds of ways, like, you know, pinning my hair or like wearing like a wet <laughs> face cloth on my head, like with all my hair, like piled up and like, You know, like being like, this is my boy haircut or and not even like, I don't even know if I use the word boy, but running around with no shirt on and then being like told that that wasn't okay, you know, and not understanding and like really these scripts about bodies and about gender and feeling odd. I felt odd a lot, like I was out of place or unwanted or yeah, just like Like there was something that I couldn't see that people saw about me that made them want to push me towards something that I wasn't. And 
that was really hard. It was really lonely and painful um, childhood of, you know, experiencing harassment and, you know, bullying, um, people would call it, but, you know, to the point where a child doesn't want to, you know, exist. I, I think that that, you know, deserves to have a different word. You know, violence is probably something that encapsulates that more. And like we've talked about earlier, it's just sad that as little ones, we share this baggage. And also like in other podcast episodes, like we heard about how other of your guests experienced similar ostracization or like really like this like implicit pressure to return quote unquote to something that fits more into I guess rigid ideas of gender and and bodies and sexuality so yeah that was really traumatizing (laughs) um I, I grew up really lonely I grew up really sad and I had this very concrete identity of being vulnerable, this idea that something about me made me the target and not really understanding why. And then obviously as children do, really grasping onto this idea that there was something wrong with me, that I was bad, that I was broken or um, fundamentally flawed, which like, if you put this into context, like, that makes really like hurt adults. (laughs) So I guess like as an adult talking about this, like I'm, I'm really sad that that's what I I went through and, and that you and many, many, many queer people went through queer and trans people. But, um, I think something that I've found really healing is that a lot of the youth that I meet these days have so much more language. They have so much more access to community that we didn't have. You know, for little five-year-olds to be able to tell me that, you know, it doesn't feel right when they wear, you know, boys' clothes and that they want to wear frilly and flowery and pink and floofy stuff and that that makes them happy. And in fact, that's not even what they want to talk about. They want to talk about I don't know, like their special interest, right? So it's, um, that is like so powerful for me and like gives me so much joy and like hope and, uh, like fuels me (laughs) and like fills my cup so much. So yeah, I guess that's kind of who I am and and what I do and, and what like drives me day to day is like building a life with my people, right? Like my community, making spaces for, us to feel less weird, quote unquote, not that being weird is wrong or bad, but that, you know, we get to, to not not experience violence and harassment and, and ostracization because of who we are, be explicit or implicit. Um, and that we just get to exist, that we don't need to ask for permission and that we don't need to explain why, you know, I want to run around without a t-shirt on, (laughs) you know? Yeah. That's a great introduction. So, to start, I would like us to talk about our shared experience of leaving New Brunswick and then come back being our true self and explain 
our stories and why we left New Brunswick and why we came back. Yeah, it was such a cool realization that we share this experience. Yeah, we were in like the same generation. We are almost the same age. And what I think listeners would need to know in context, you know, whether you're older or younger than we are, the early 2000s were, you know, being gay was not okay. You know, like just being gay was like really dangerous. Ellen was not a thing yet. I think she started being on TV in like 2002 or three. I don't know. But even at that, when she first started, she was like an experiment and it was very strange. And people who were watching her were seen as like really like liberal and, you know, Will and Grace and the queer eye was coming up. And these were like the first like queer imagery that we had access to in those years. And the reason why I'm talking about that is because we really have to set the tone for what it was for even us as like 30-something-year-olds, what, what being just queer meant. Or like, we didn't even have queer as language. Like, I don't even think that I learned about being queer until maybe 2010, you know? In those years, being gay, like, I think for me, the reference of being gay was like someone distant that I didn't know's uncle who was like ostracized from his family for being gay, right? Who was like the single dude, like living alone and miserable. Like that was the image that we as a society created around gayness. And that lesbians were these like butch women who looked like boys. And, you know, that's it. That, that was the frame of reference in those years. So as a kid, I think um, we, we didn't have a lot of points of repair that would indicate that we were normal, <laughs> like quote unquote, or we were allowed to be feeling the things we were feeling, thinking the things we were thinking, right? Because kids start to think about bodies and gender and sexuality at a really young age. We start to think about how we relate to one another, how we want to be seen by other people, um, how we feel inside. Those things, oh, wow, we start thinking about that really early, like seven, like six or seven. And I'm sure that you and um, other queer and trans people have very early memories of, you know, this gender playing, playing with gender and exploring and finding joy and like moments of like ecstasy and, and, you know, trying on your mom's shoes or makeup and, you know, pretending (laughs) that, you know, you're your boy, you know, like these are all moments that were really important to us as children because so little was carved out for us to have those moments at all. And also that if we were having those moments and having joy, that we were subsequently trying to hide the fact that we were having this joy attached to like gender bending and that we had to put it away and that we had to push it down and we had to put a lid on it because some part of this child our, our childhoodness knew that these elements of us were dangerous, that they could cause us harm. Even if we couldn't cognitively conceptualize how or why, we knew that this was quote unquote bad, that we need to put it away. So the, the reason why I'm setting the tone is that that created teenagers that were really scared. You know, for me, like, living violence and harassment every day, you know, both like physical, verbal, like just persistent 
violence from a really early age, you know, from my neighbors, you know, like the kids who live next to me, behind me, down the street. The violence was incessant, you know, from the minute I landed at the bus stop all the way to school, at school, throughout the day at school, back in the bus, all the way back home, walking home, you know, I remember like distinctively like running for my life and like being told that, you know, horrible things were going to be done to me and like slamming the door in the neighbor kid's face and like locking the door and being so glad that there was a deadbolt on that door, right? Like this is the type of ostracization queer and trans kids live, not even having the language to say that we were queer and tra- queer and trans, just the fact that we were queer and trans and, and probably neurodivergent also. Other kids feel it. <laughs> they like feel it off of us and see that we are not ascribing to the same scripts that they're abiding by. And they innately start to push us back or try to push us back into these scripts about how to be. And for us, it's very confusing and it's very scary because you fall into these narratives of what is wrong with me? Why Why am I such a plague? <laughs> like, what is it about me that people just know something about who I am that is so wrong and so bad that they need to chase me down the street telling me that they're going to, you know, do bad things to me. Like, what did I do? What did I do that justifies this type of violence? So as a kid, you're swimming in this mindset. You're swimming in this complete isolation and despair and hopelessness, wondering what are you supposed to do? You're 10 years old, you're 11 years old, you're 12 years old, and you tell the adults around you that this is what's happening and you you get completely abandoned. You get told, well, it's because they like you or it's because you're reacting or you should just say this thing or you should just ignore them. This is not what is happening. What was happening was a homophobia and transphobia and ableism. It's classism. It's, it's these systems that create kids and and people that innately, implicitly want to push each other back into narratives that make it more quote unquote normal. And any kid who falls outside of these scripts becomes a target. And that's what we were. We were targets because we were queer, we were trans, and we were neurodivergent. And so basically (laughs) living really messed up childhoods where Adults didn't protect us. Principals, teachers, bus drivers, cafeteria workers, none of those adults stood up for us. And so as teenagers, we had to take things into our own hands. And I think for you, it looked very different than for me. For me, it just I just turned into this scary, unapproachable jerk. You know, I started wearing all black and I started using drugs and drinking every night and just getting blackout drunk. Like, and I was like 15. Like, do you know what alcohol does to a 15 year old's brain? Like, it's insane that that is how I kept myself alive. But that was literally the only way. Cause I remember crying myself to sleep from like age, like, I don't know, nine all the way to high school. And then in high school, I made a promise to myself, like, I don't want to live like this anymore. I don't want to have to feel like I'm a waste of space. I'm so sick of being told that I'm wrong and I'm bad and 
there's something about me that's so abominable. And I remember that that's how I, I came to protect myself. I just became scarier than the people who were hurting me. And they left me alone. They full on just gave up <laughs> because I was scarier than them. They were just like, oh shit, like we're not messing with them anymore. Like they are way too scary. And but, but what did it do? It made me a really miserable adult, <laughs> you know, like it made me so angry for so long and it took years. And even today, like, and we, we talk about this stuff where I get really triggered, like, you know, when I interpret people's comments or, or, you know, just the way that they are in the world in a way that feels like it's threatening to me and that I need to defend or protect myself in this scary shield-like way. And people are always like so surprised and taken aback. They're like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm so triggered. <laughs> like, this is, this is like really old stuff. So yeah, I think, um, I don't even know how I got here, but oh yeah, how we left New Brunswick. Sorry, I had to set the whole stage. You know, I tell really long stories, but Okay, so I got really angry and I isolated myself and I alienated all my friends and adults in my life because I, you know, I hated everybody and everything. But hey, I graduated and I made my way to a space that wasn't Moncton. Because for me, Moncton meant bullies, it meant homophobia, it meant transphobia. Like in high school, I think that we were maybe like two we had like an underground network of like queer teens that all knew each other, who all dated each other, who were all each other's best friends. And like, it was like this, like, like a little secret club. And like, nobody was out because just being gay wasn't a thing. Forget about being trans or like non-binary. And um, yeah, I went to this camp in Ottawa where the government funded these like Terry Fox, like smarty kids camp. And we did a tour of U Ottawa and I saw the Pride like a uh, student center. And I just remember being like, what? You mean there are other gays? <laughs> like we're out here? People be, be being gay like out loud? <laughs> and so like I remember getting home and being like, so mama, I'm like going to U Ottawa and like this, is, I don't care what you say, but this is what I'm going to do. And I remember her being like, like, what, <laughs> what are you saying? And, and like for people who, who might not be in New Brunswick or in Moncton who, who don't know the French like education system, but there's only one French university in New Brunswick and it's U to M, University of Moncton. And like all of our school uh, history is like preparing us to go to University of Moncton. And like, so everybody kind of de facto goes to UDM. And, you know, if you've been along for this whole ride, like UDM was like where all of my like harassers and like bane of my existence people went. So I didn't want to go there. Like I almost had to change schools. Like when they opened ODC, I remember my mom asking like, do you want to go to ODC? Like she straight up asked me, she's like, would you just rather we pull you from Mathieu, Mathieu Martin and put you in Odyssey. And I was like, honestly, like it's going to be the same shit, just different schools. So I'm like, I'd rather just not have to take a longer bus ride and like just continue going to Mathieu because it's going to be the same garbage. How brilliant are we as teenagers? Like I understood that there was something about the way that I was in the world that told other people that I was quote unquote, different. And I could either harness that and use it as a skill 
or I could wallow in it and see myself as a victim or whatever, or I could just coll- like collapse into it or ignore it. So I guess I just chose to kind of <laughs> like build a, build a like tank of <laughs> Fort Knox. And I was like, okay, I'm going to buckle down. I'm going to get it done, you know? So yeah. And, and I left for Ottawa. I was like 17 or 18. Like I was fresh, fresh. And I just remember like pushing my parents out of my dorm room right after like driving all the way from Moncton. Like God bless them, you know? Like they were so loving. Like they did the best they could. Like they really did. But I was so over being in New Brunswick. Like New Brunswick felt so scary and unsafe and dangerous. Like we couldn't, you know, and I've had girlfriends since I was in eighth grade, you know, and the amount of like secrecy and hiding, like not no PDA, like, you know, the being really careful about how we would like write to each other and like, anyways, and being in Ottawa and like finally being on my own and like having, and like all I could think of was this like workshop that was happening for 101 week, like the, like frosh that was like LGBTQ 101. And I just wanted my parents to freaking get out of my dorm so I could go to that workshop. And I felt like it was like a giddy secret that I couldn't really tell them because my mom, my mom was the only one. She ended up finding my MSN chats with one of my girlfriends. That'll be another story. But I couldn't drive when she, when she like read my messenger. It wasn't messenger. It was MSN. And, but I was going to work. And so she trapped me in the car. Anyways, she, she was like, you're gay. I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Like it, like legit guys, like that's how it was. Like being gay wasn't a thing. So yeah, I went to Ottawa and like, and we lived happily ever after. No, <laughs> it was, it was a whole thing, but I felt like I couldn't be myself here. Like being in Moncton just didn't feel safe for me. Like it felt really dangerous. It felt really scary just being gay. And I knew that there was something weird with gender going on with me, but back then, like being trans, like wasn't as accessible language wise to general consumption. Like being trans was still like the full word, like the full iteration of the word, right? Like, it was like a niche subject on like triple X, you know, like that's kind of like where trans things were at in that era. And so um, being myself in Ottawa, Ottawa was such a gift, <laughs> like what a blessing, the ability to secure a giant student loan to, to just live off my <laughs> I don't know who okayed that, but it was the best. Like I would never trade my life in Ottawa for anything in the world. I made the best of friends. We built such a community and it was so special because I found my people. I found the weirdos. I found the queers. I found the trans people. And I'm like tearing up just thinking about it, but like meeting my first trans and like queer adults that really saw me like was the most healing my 18 year old self could get because I would have died like whole full stop. Like if I didn't leave for Ottawa and I know a lot of kids say this, like a lot of queer and trans people, cause it's true, but like straight up, if I didn't leave Moncton, like I don't think that I would have wanted to keep being a person in Moncton because it just felt so not okay. Like I was so convinced that who I was was wrong that who I was was this bad, 
poisonous, tainted, wrong, broken, angry person, and that there was no way out for me, that the only option was to die. And Ottawa and leaving and going to school and like finding my people like was like the remedy and the balm that I needed to find and claw my way out of this like indoctrination from childhood that that I wasn't broken. That being queer and trans and neurospicy wasn't anything wrong with me. It was how these kids were taught at home what was actually, you know, the script of of how to be the norm and what's acceptable. And and you know, it wasn't my fault all along. And um damn, if you're listening to this and you feel like that, find your people. Find find us, write to us. Like you are not alone and you are not wrong or broken or bad. <laughs> you just need to find your people because we're out here. And so I spent six years, five years, I can't even, I'm so bad at math, but I did an undergrad in Ottawa and then I did a master's degree in Toronto. And then after Toronto, I missed my family. Like it'd been almost a decade of like being away from my people, you know, Toronto, like you'd be lucky to hear French, you know, it's really not rural. (laughs) It's not nature-based, you know, it's not Acadian. But, you know, I love being in Toronto for all kinds of reasons. I build my own community there again. But I remember witnessing an interaction between this woman from the Jane Finch area working with a kid from the Jane Finch area and just watching their complicity and their closeness and, like, the shared experience of being from Jane Finch and who they were and all that they've shared just like it hit me like a ton of bricks like frig i need to go back i need to go back and be with my family find my people in moncton you know and find those kids that are were like me and carve out to the nail spaces for us to for the kids to not have to go anywhere for the kids to just be able to have language and spaces and and adults that see them and protect them and cherish them for who they are, you know, and counter these scripts of being wrong and broken and, you know, that there's something innately not okay, you know? So, yeah, so I came back. It was the funniest thing. I, you know, after living in Toronto, I, I'm kind of like what I like to call like a hard femme. So it's like, and the kind of person that like puts makeup on in the subway, you know, like not subway, like the restaurant, but like the subway, like the train. Sorry, I feel like I need to specify because we're in Moncton. So <laughs> there's no subway here. There's just like the sandwich kind. But, you know, like I would put makeup on in the subway and like, you know, wear my heels in like, but like have like ripped tights and like stained t-shirt and like, you know, grease. You know, like you have to get the picture, right? Like with my patches and my I'm a little rough around the edges. But um, I ain't no lady, okay? But okay, so like the, the reason why I'm saying all this is because I got to New Brunswick. I got this job in Rogersville, which is like this tiny, sweet little town, population like 200. I don't know, I'm exaggerating. But I got there with my little like, like a hatchback, like economic, like city car, <laughs> like 
deck to the nines. Like I had like pumps on, I had a skirt on, like my hair did, my nails done, like I had full face makeup. I don't know if I said that, but anyways, I get to the place that I'm renting and like, I swear to God, Audrey, like this never gets old. I like open the door and I like, I swear I sunk like maybe like two inches into this like driveway of vase, like just like mud. (laughs) And like, I hadn't touched a garbage like disposal. Like I didn't have to put my garbage to the street there. Okay. Like for like the last 10 years, I would put my garbage in a chute and it would disappear and someone would come pick it up in the middle of the night. And I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to mow my lawn. I didn't, you know, like I lived in high rises, like this mud situation was like very new to me. So it was a really rough transition um, coming back, but I knew that Moncton wasn't going to be it for me right at the beginning because it felt too close to home. It felt like the people who had really caused me so much harm and like harassed me and like brought down so much violence on me as a child, like that shit was still too fresh. And I think the biggest thing, like, and I'm, as I'm saying this, I'm like hearing all of the different people who have like said stories of like, well, it's just bullying, like get over it. It's been years. Like, why can't you just swallow it? It's in the past. What's in the past is in the past. And it's like, bro, (laughs) I don't think you grasp the level of quote unquote bullying this was. Like I wanted to D.I.E. myself, you know, like, This shit is not like, oh, I stepped on your toe. I'm so sorry. This is like day in and day out, like morning to night, like barrage of like people everywhere telling you that you shouldn't exist. That's literally what it feels like. And it's just like being told that it's just bullying, that you should just get over it is like such a reflection on how not a survivor of like violence in childhood like that you are because it's like why would you be nine years old and want to die well here you go it's more than just i stepped on your toe and called you you know a bad word it's like this er erosion of sense of self of who you are and um it really hurts people and it hurts people for a long time and it affects them all the way to my 30s right like i'm in my 30s and like i was telling you earlier I ran into one of these people at a coffee shop and he like acted like, wow, we were the best of friends. And I just, I fawned. I really, I I fawned because I didn't know what to do. It's like, how could you be so un-in touch with the suffering you've caused in me to be able to hug me? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what planet are you on? You know, like, and it's just like, and I'm as I'm saying this, it's not kind, it's not necessary, but there's also like a part of a kidney that's like, I need to say this stuff because if you're listening to this and you're a survivor of this type of violence, like you are not alone in still feeling sad about the fact that that stuff happened you know, it really affects someone. And I didn't want to come back. I didn't want to come back to Moncton. I didn't want to be here. And even today, like it's hard for me to walk on the street or ride my bike around town because there's like a little part in me that's like the narrative of these people who have hurt me saying like, oh, there they go. That queer, weirdo, nerd, reject, loser, trans person. Like we should 
do bad stuff to them. You know, like it's just so irrational, but that's, that's kind of where my brain goes and it's super fear-based and just a testament of how long the shadows are of this violence that, that we live as children. So yeah, coming back to Moncton was difficult, but I am so glad that I am back because I get to share spaces with queers now and create community and lasting friendships and work together in helping kids not live like this isolation and and harm that we we both have carried and I just want to keep doing that. I want to heal. I want to help the kids who hurt kids too. Um, because obviously kids who are hurting other kids are hurt kids, you know? But um, yeah, that's that's my story about Moncton. I'm back and it's hard, but I'm glad I get to meet people like you. <laughs> we get to meet and do all kinds of really special and important things, so. That was a succinct answer, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It might have been the longest answer I've ever had on the podcast. I'll need to check all my tapes, but... uh... You're so welcome. I'm a professional. I was made for podcasting, what can I say? (laughs) I love the sound of my own voice. Oh, yeah, you're made for it. You have a great sounding voice. Do I really? Oh, yeah. Ooh, baby. Oh, my God. I'm tired. <laughs> it doesn't show at all. Well, compared to, compared to, like, the earlier recording, like, of us at the start, I was just, like, singing incessantly. Now I'm like... <laughs> Before I talk about my story why I left New Brunswick and why I came back I just want to say how inspiring your story is and I want all our listeners to really who are trans to know that even if we suffered a lot when we were younger we can get through it we can be ourselves and we can thrive And we can be queer here in New Brunswick. It is possible. It's absolutely, it's been possible. We can and are doing it and we've been doing it for a long time, but it's just, it's been really painful. But now like Audrey, like I'm so thankful for you and honestly, like the amount of queer kids and people organizing in 2023 is just astounding because I remember like coming home and being like, what? What? What's going on? You know, and having this like burning desire for like messing stuff up, you know, like really setting this place on fire. And here we are, like it's been many years and I'm, I'm proud of where we've been, how far we've come. <laughs> for me, it all started, I grew up in Burrisford, right beside Batters. I don't have a lot of good memories from there. I got a lot of bullying at elementary school. And then in high school, the only way I had to survive was to be a ghost, was to hide myself. So bullying started really young. It was around, I think, even preschool. Oh, that's awful. 
Yeah, and all the bullying was really because I was different. I was not like other boys. I didn't want to hurt anyone. I didn't want to get dirty. I didn't want to be like fight, like be rough. I was more intellectual. And so I did not fit in with the other guys. And like you said, people fed on it. Like people saw it was different and they were, oh, you're an easy target. We'll just bully you because we know that you're not going to come after us because that's not how I was raised also. I was also raised like, always treat people like you would want to be treated. And so I grew up with that bullying. Like you said, really one of the things that really like resonated with me was when you said that you were going to the bus, you were getting bullied. Bullied in the bus, bullied in school, bully coming back. That was what I was living too. It was all the time. And then coming back home, like you, our bully was our neighbor. <laughs> so we were not feeling safe at our home. I remember like running in my house, having like, I was running into my house to not meet my bully sometimes. Even when I went back in Burstford after when I was studying at university, As an adult, I was still having that fear at my home of being bullied, even if my bully was not living at his parents' house anymore. So it shows the baggage, how long-blasting are the effect of that violence and that comes with bullying. And so everything started in Beresford Batters, and I have so many trauma bad memories there that I have not been back since I came out so since 2020 I have not been to batters so it all started there bullying was really extreme it was yes the bully but everyone was like joining him I felt alone sometimes could be almost all my class like you have 30 people around you just bullying you it's traumatizing it's You cannot imagine how hurtful it is. It is hurtful in the moment, but I would even say it's sometimes worse. The lasting effect is is worse. Absolutely, it degrades your sense of self. You 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 become you feel like crumbs. So you become the person that they want you to become. So you hide your difference. And try to please others. And that really was super damaging for me. Because when I grew up, I did not explore my difference who I was. And I started in high school to have some um, signs that I was queer. Like, I remember sitting in school in, I think it was 11th grade, pretty sure. I was sitting... At my desk, and I was looking at a girl a couple of desks away, and I wanted to switch bodies with her. It's a clear sign that you're trans, but since I didn't want to be different, I didn't look up on internet to see why I felt that way. I just discarded that thought. And then I remember like sometimes trying on 
female clothing. And then I went to the University of Moncton. Like you said, Zivi, in New Brunswick, there's only one French university. So the University of Moncton is a continuation of the high school. So if you have a bully in high school, they'll probably follow you to the University of Moncton. And I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but like, this is a, I remember having this like thought of like, if I go to UDM, I will have to look and live with all of these people who have like caused me so much harm. And it's amazing to me that like you had this exact same experience. Exactly. We, it's really similar as experience. Since I, I was so hidden in high school, no one was seeing me. So I thought that going versus Moncton, people are adults and I'll, I would be okay. Yeah, that makes and sense to me. You would think, eh? I think it has maybe even been my worst episode of bullying I've ever lived was in Moncton by adults. And I remember feeling destroyed, feeling completely alone. I remember going to the security at the university and telling them about the harassment and the violence I was going through. And then I was able to live at another place. I had to move out. And also, they had even to put like a restraining order on the bully. So he, he could not talk to me anymore. But what happened after that? So yes, the bullying stopped. But since I was like the person, they say like the rat. So that was the rat. No one talked to me about after that. I was completely alone. I hate that. I'm so sorry. So for me, moving out of New Brunswick was a question of survival. It was literally an exile because... I did not feel I had the choice. I had to move out. And even if it was already in the plan when I went to study in Moncton, I was only supposed to do a year. But after everything that happened, I had to move out. So to me, like, it's like you are so freaking amazing and precious and like a delight. There's like a ferocious mama, papa, whatever bear that's like, They don't get to have you, right? Like, how dare they think that they get to keep you in their university when they've treated you like that, you know? And I know that they don't think like that, but to me, it's like, don't even look at her because, like, you don't get to have that privilege of, of having access to Audrey because of who you are as a person, you know? It's, I guess that's where I, my brain goes. It's like, I'm glad that you weren't there because, like, you... T'es pas, comme, ils sont pas dignes de ta présence. Yeah, these people, like, was nothing against the University of Moncton, it was the people being there. Yeah. Excuse-moi, yeah. Yeah, no problem. It was really, these people did not deserve me. The people yeah, that were bullying me, yeah, exactly they true. did not deserve me. So, I move out. I went to Quebec City, at the Laval University. What made you pick Laval? I had my godmother that was staying in uh, Lévis. Mm -hmm. So I had a family member nearby. Mm -hmm. 
and I was not attracted to Montreal. It was like a big city. I was like, I didn't want to live like downtown Montreal. Yeah, I, I think the Bairdsford Moncton jump was a big city jump. Yeah. <laughs> that I was living in Bathurst. It was even bigger. Yeah, oh my God. Yeah, and I, even if I studied in Moncton, but it was still a big jump. So I thought their other option was Sherbrooke mm-hmm. also. But Sherbrooke was like too small. Mm-hmm. So Montreal was like too much. Sherbrooke too small, but Quebec City is a beautiful city too. It is, yeah. It's like Ottawa. Eh? It has that yes. sweet spot. It's so funny because I had the same thinking. I'm like, I wanted to go to Montreal because it was like this like queer, like French utopia. But I also thought it was going to be too big. And Toronto just scared the shit out of me. So I was like, well, I guess I'll go to Ottawa. <laughs> it was like this like safe choice because I almost went to Laval too. That's why I decided Laval because... Uh, My godmother was nearby and really loved the city. So so I studied there. I was not out at the time, so I did not have the chance to really meet the queer community in Quebec City. I remember when I started studying there, I was so destroyed after all the bullying I got. I was scared to talk to people. I was even scared just to leave my binder at my table in the cafeteria while I go to the bathroom. I was just so scared people while still my stuff like do harm to me. I could not look people in the face. I had to start from scratch. It was the bottom of the barrel for me. The thing that really kept me alive all that time was my studies. Like in school, I really liked studying. I had great grades and At the university, it was the same thing. So that really kept me alive. I wanted to get my bachelor's degree in computer engineering. That was my goal. And I put all my energy in that. So university for me was studying. Yes, I had like some fun courses, but I did not have any social life in university. It was just studying. I did not meet a lot of people. The thing started getting better when I started my work. After a couple of years, I started meeting people because I was, when I started working, I was so shy because of all the bullying I got. And when I started feeling more comfortable at work, like seeing people, like you said, I think earlier, like having adults telling me that I'm a good person, they really like me. That meant a lot for me since it's not things I've heard a lot from strangers mm-hmm. that I did not have a lot. I did not receive with the years a lot of positive feedback. Mm-hmm. So, and then participating in social activities really helped me like talk more, being more social because deep inside, I was a super social person. I would love to talk, but I was so shy to be bullied. I was so like pushed exactly. into you, you know, like, yeah, you had to just keep it all under wraps and now you can't shut up. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just easy. That's more like me. That's, I don't know how to shut up. You're the one tonight that. Yeah, I can't shut up. I'm so sorry. You're, oh, no. you're oh, such no. a sweetheart. 
But like, yeah, like I, to me, like the fact that people as like the adults that were in your life as you grew up, like couldn't just like revel in how freaking badass and amazing you are, like really enrages me. <laughs> like it really makes me angry that you lived as a little girl, like not knowing that and like what an abomination that like this little sweet Audrey like wasn't like pampered and like cherished for how like brilliant and kind and like creative she was is just like such an atrocity to me and like I hope that us being adults who can be those adults for other queer and trans kids like that's what I want to do you know like I think that's so important to to why we came back. I don't know. That's why I came back. But why did you come back? One of the really important moments in my life in figuring out who I was, was participating in the Halloween costume contest at work. Because that gave me the opportunity to disguise as a Disney princess. It was the Belle princess. And being able to express my feminine gender expression. I remember that the feeling so alive, having a feeling like of belonging I never had before. And I remember like that day just, it was not just like the makeup and the dress and the clothing it was also just the way I behave. It felt so natural. And I remember I won the costume contest for the first of four years in a row. In a very a row. lucrative career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I'm not quitting my day job. <laughs> But uh, my costume was costing more than the prizes they were giving oh away. Oh my God, stop. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. But... I remember that they just feeling so alive. And I remember the day after how bad I felt presenting mail again. After that, I, I tried to remember if it was after my first or second costume, I, tr I started like exploring my identity. But it was the Halloween costume that really brought back those feelings those like thoughts of not being gender conforming of being queer and then the year following i started in my house like wearing female clothing like putting on makeup and after that was going shopping at value village every week to get some new clothes yeah do you remember some of the first things you got was it like was it like do you remember if it was like a skirt or like was it heels or like What were some of your first picks? I remember the first thing I bought was on AliExpress. I bought a pair of jeggings yeah. and a purple V-neck top. Really basic. And I think, did I bought a bra too? I think so. I think I had a bra too. I bought online because I didn't want to buy female clothing, male presenting. So I had some clothing and I bought also a wig. I think it was a blonde wig. I call it boy mode. It's like you're like a secret spy agent. Yeah, I felt like secret spy agent. That's what I call it with my people. Yeah. I'm like, 
You were just a spy. <laughs> and I think after that, the first time I went to Value Village, I think I might have filled up the cart of clothing. Shut up, really? That's amazing. I, I don't remember it was the first or second trip, but I remember one time going there and literally having the cart full. Yes, and you got it all. You were like, I'm going home. That's amazing. Hey, that was like a $500 bill. Like, sale. They had a good sale on that day, too. Oh my God, I love that for you. So I was living my dream. I remember I, I spent like two hours in the dressing room just trying everything on. Oh my God. I love that. So, <laughs> That's so special. Yeah, like, can so we take a moment for like how like high femme that is? <laughs> like yeah. two hours in the change room. I'm like, I'm too like rough. rough. I'm like, I just like, I just put it in the bag. And if I like it, when I get home, I'll wash it. And if I don't, I'll just leave it with the tag on in my car for the next three years. That's it. And I'll never return it. <laughs> yeah, so I remember like filling up that cart. Yeah, I remember that day also something that was less fun was being outed that day. No. No, I remember at the cashier, someone outed me. What? Yeah. The cashier? No. no. Someone else was like, oh, you're really courageous and... What? Yeah. That's so effed up. That was like that day. So I, I was like, okay, I'm just starting and that happened. So that feeling of belonging, that femininity I could finally show really got me through that because I was like, that was so empowering for me. So I think after that, I remember bringing that cart full of clothing at my home and taking my guest bedroom and transforming that wardrobe in my like feminine clothing wardrobe yes. yeah that was so much fun and then every other week i went shopping there got some new clothes and it's something people don't realize but sizing is really different between men and women it takes some time to figure out what are your sizes mm -hmm. because and even like in female clothing sizes between companies are not the same so a medium like in, I don't know, in Calvin Klein could be a large and I, in Jack Jones, I don't know, like it's completely different. And you have to get a set of clothes, like clothing for each season. Yeah. Like I find a lot of my like trans femme clients are like, now I have to shop for winter. Like yes. where do I get size 12 like snow boots? Like it's amazing. Like, those are the things that as a, a fab person, like, I totally didn't think of, but it totally makes sense. And now, Audrey, if you are in need of clothing or if any of your listeners who are trans femme need clothing, I have bins and bins and bins and bins of clothing in oh, my downstairs for my trans femme clients. That's good to know. I have uh, one bin here. No, I have like, I think I have like 12 wow. of like all types of stuff. So if ever you or any of our listeners yeah. uh, need clothing, I'm also going to start uh, collecting uh, binders to Ooh, have like a nice. binder deposit nice. so that when folks get top surgery or whatever, they need to get rid of their binders mm -hmm. that they can drop yes. it off. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was a great moment. Like, going to Value Village and going, I remember I was going every week. I wanted to do my 
shopping, get my clothes. And after that, it was going, doing the grocery every weekend in female presenting. Like you were in you, in you, you were yeah, just you. Exactly. So doing the grocery as me and then multiple times per week, I was going out as me. And then it came at a moment where I pretty much knew I was trans, but I still was not able to accept it. I talked about it to my parents at that moment. And then that was not easy to talk to them. It took them some time to realize that I really needed that. And then started seeing a psychologist in Quebec City. And then after a couple of months, I was ready to come out. But right at the same time, COVID hits. So I came out right uh, April 2020, right at the start of COVID. So I did not have the chance to know the queer community in Quebec City. But COVID was just a continuation for me of loneliness because I did not have any friend in Quebec City. I was alone. I did not have people to hang out with. So COVID was no different for me. I was as alone that I was always. I'm so sorry, Audrey. After a couple of months, like doing my coming out, I felt a lot of euphoria. Being me all the time, like being able to do my wardrobe because when I came out, I, I restarted my wardrobe from scratch <laughs> because I knew my size now. And funny story. Oh, you, you think like the Value Village was a great haul. COVID, all the stores were closed, if you remember. Shots, so true. So Girl. I wanted to do my wardrobe. Oh my God. So I ordered online oh multiple size oh. to make sure I could have the good size. So I remember at the moment, I had so much boxes of clothes in my guest bedroom. I had like a lot of stuff I, I ordered. I remember it was Old Navy, Dynamite a lot. I think at the time I had like four at least $3,000 of merchandise. Wow. Amazing. Don't worry. Everything that I could not wear, I returned it and got refunded. Oh, my God. Well, it's just, it just goes to show, like, all this time, there's this, like, femme fashionista, yeah. like, waiting to be, like, yeah. let out. And here she is, like, just, like, like really living yeah. her life. And exactly. I think that's wonderful. That was so empowering. So I did that. But after a couple of months, you, I crashed. That loneliness got to me again. And after that, like, I really needed to get closer to my family. My parents and my brother. Those were the person I was in contact with. And I really needed their support and to be closer to them to get through transitioning and being myself. So... A night of September, I did a huge nightmare. And I just, at that time, I had a vision that I knew that I could not live, survive in Quebec City for long alone. It was like um, life or death. I, I needed to move out. I was like, if I don't do it right now, I don't know how I'll survive. It was a dark place. Oh, to yes. Me. A week after that, my house was sold. <laughs> and I moved to Moncton in November 2020. Wow. So, so like that, you were like, I'm changing this. This isn't working for me. Yeah. One day. Powerful. 
You are wonderful. What a brilliant choice. Yeah. And at the same time, I was doing my name change too. Doing my name change and buying a house is interesting. <laughs> so stressful buying a house. Yeah, but I got everything done right at the good time. So how is it being back in Moncton, like moving in and like, because it was still pandemic. Oh, I have another story. I'll always remember the day I moved out of my house in oh, Quebec City. City. Yeah, I remember like going to the lawyer, I think it's Natar in Quebec, sign off the papers. And then if we remember in 2020, we had a border control. So I remember going there at the border control, I had all the papers done. But the thing was that I only took possession of my house in, in, in mid-December. So I had planned to do my quarantine at my parents' house. I had like my own bathroom and my own bedroom. We followed all the safety rules. So I went to border control and then they asked me for the papers and everything. And I was like, I'm moving out. I'm like homeless right now. I sold my house. I don't have any more place to live. And I bought a house to New Brunswick. I showed them like my papers of like my uh, mortgage and all my purchase papers. And they were like, we're not sure you could enter because we don't want you to do your quarantine at your parents' house. So I remember staying 10 minutes crying in the parking, not knowing if I could come in or not. Like I was thinking in my head, I might be stuck two weeks like in a hotel alone. It was a crisis because at that moment I was so desperate to get to my family, to get that support. So I remember going to the border. After that, they told me, go see that person at the border. They'll decide. Because we never had border control in New Brunswick. So there was one person decide if, if I could come in or not. That is wild. And that person was really comprehensive. I had, had no problem at all. I showed her all my papers and she was like, oh, yeah. Go in. Go in. <laughs> so wild. Yeah, what stress to put someone under, like, in such a vulnerable position? I was so vulnerable at that time, but at least I got in. Double, double vulnerability, right? Like, the fact that you're selling your house is yeah. really stressful. The fact that you're moving yes. provinces is really stressful. The fact that you're, like, already really mentally, like, fragile and, yes. like changing your name is super overwhelming like and like having to confront that with like this person of authority like what a position to put someone in yeah. like i'm so sorry yeah and i remember that day was like in a movie like almost like in the post-apocalyptic <laughs> movie like yes. there was no one on the highway i have my car during an hour and not seeing anyone else in my lane it was like because we were like at the heart of COVID and I could not even stop to the bathroom. Because they would even like trace, contact trace where you would would yes. stop. I remember. I, I, could, I could put gas in my car, but I could not go in. And you had to pay at the pump. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Yes. Okay. Wow, that is wild. So you yeah. quarantined at your parents' place yeah. and then you took position of this place. Yes, exactly. Like two weeks after. So that's how I moved. Wow. Like two weeks what a story yeah. well i'm so glad that you're here i'm so glad that you're in moncton yeah. i think that's such a great it was a great decision now it we get just, to be friends 
I'm so greedy. <laughs> it feels homier. Like yeah. it, I, like Burstford Batters never felt home for me. Yeah. This feels home. And then I had the chance to have a relationship with my parents and my brother. Like my parents became some of my best friends. I had a new relationship with them. It's different, eh? Especially after doing therapy, like, I am so much more able to look upon them with eyes of compassion than what my teenage self was able to do. Like, wow, what a shift. I was still pretty close with my brother because we were playing games every week and talking more than my parents, but that was really something I needed to have that relationship. And then being able to meet people here to really being able to make friends to know people in the queer community in Moncton that really changed my life that really like I remember that person I met that she knows she saved my life and she was able like to be there to support me with everything I was going through also and helping me meeting people and having a social life something I never had in my life before Last year, in 2022, that's where I really started to be able to go to parties, go to drag shows, like just doing board game nights and having fun. So I'm finally able to have fun, be myself. And here in New Brunswick, as an Acadian and home. Yeah, the podcast makes a lot more sense now. Like when I hear you share this story, because, you know, being in queer organizing for so long and when I first met you, I was just so excited. I'm like, who is she? Like, where does she come from? Like, I have never met her. That's kind of, I feel like me and like some of the older queers in Moncton are like weird, you know, like old, like Acadian families when they sit at the table and like talk about each other's families and they're like, you know, the aunt or the cousin or the sister of the... Well, I feel like there's like a crew of us who've been around and when all the new queer people like come or like people come around to like organizing or come into their social life or into their identities, we're always like, who is that? Like, let's, I mean, like try really hard not to like overwhelm you you and like all the new ones. But like talking to you today, I'm like, we have all met you. Like you've met all of us. So it's, it's amazing that like you have connected yourself and like are creating space in a way that feels so delightfully delicious for you. Like it's amazing. I think it's so special and I'm so excited to see how this podcast and how your your work in the community is going to evolve because like I've just met you. It's been, you know, a short friendship for now, but I I can see as becoming very, very close friends. And, you know, I think there's a lot of room for queers in Moncton and New Brunswick in general to build coalition Mm -hmm. and to build momentum together. And I think talking and sitting and chatting like this is a really crucial vehicle to not only like get to know each other, but also to document our stories and to also kind of create this ongoing conversation with other queer people in Moncton and uh, like New Brunswick in general. 
and um, their families, teachers, like policymakers. And if that means that we have to put our hearts on the line and like talk about hard stuff, like I'm game and I think you do it with such brilliance. So thank you so much for, for having me today and like for creating the space and taking the time to stay with me and let me talk my little heart out. I'm a fire sign. Okay, I can't help it. Uh, you're very welcome. I had a great time with you. Uh, so just before we end, I just want you to tell our listeners how can people reach out to you and learn more about what you do. Mm-hmm. So my name is Zivi. So Z-I-V like Veronica I. Um, there's just one me. So if you put that in Google, you'll find me. But on all social media, my handle is always the tallest Zivi. I am 5'11", so... Me too! You are? Oh my god, girl. You're gonna have to, like, Audrey the tallest? The tallest Audrey? (laughs) (laughs) What is, like, queer siblinghood? Yeah, we'll have to measure each other. Um, Yeah, so yeah, the tallest Zivi, or my website is just my first and last name, Zivi Richard. I have an email. You can write to me. Um, I am an atrocious email responding person. Like, it takes me forever yeah, write to me. I will get back to you. It's just, you'll have to be patient. Um, talk to me if you see me in public. Like I'm very distinguished looking. I don't blend in. Like it's really hard for me to blend in. So if you see me say hi to me, I want to talk to you. Um, I'm really friendly and write to me. I am at La Station a lot. That's uh, one of my office spaces. So if ever you're there, come say hi. But yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where people can find me. Yeah. Thank you very much, Zivi. That was so much fun. That was so fun. We've had we had a lot yeah. of fun. And I think that's really going to be a, a nice learning experience for our listeners. And I'm sure that you'll be back on this show because we have so much more yeah, to so talk. Much. Yeah, we have so much to talk about. I'm like, I have like 10 things I want to talk I to you about, that. but it's like way too late now. I had so much fun. It was so worth it. Um, Also, happy Halloween. Oh, thank you. You too. Finally, I invite you to subscribe to my podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, and to follow Trends with a Voice on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget that a society that is more inclusive to the transgender community is better for everyone. Thanks, and see you next time.